Good job. Here, oh, here, here's the phone. Here we go. There we go. That's what we do. So, um, yeah, another good thing about technology is you can type in a word like Ephrathites and like how to pronounce it, and you get a YouTube that pronounces it. Except the YouTube is like five minutes long, just over and over and over. I'm like, I got the point. Anyway, so do you ever feel like God has failed you? I was talking to a friend a while ago, and he said way back when he was young, he thought God was leading him in a direction, and then that just shut down, and he was angry at God for an entire year. Have you ever been angry with God? Have you ever wanted to just walk away, just walk away from God, walk away from the church, walk away from God's word? That Those things happen to us. David experienced that, and he wrote Psalms. So you can check that out. That's also another sermon. But anyway, um, if you've ever th- been disappointed and thought about just quitting this whole God thing, you're not alone, okay? The question is, where would you go to find fulfillment? Where would you go to find true rest? Are you going to find that in motorcycles, ice cream, money? Not so much, right? But that's what our culture is is telling us. So we are going to see if the text answers the question, where do we find rest, okay? And so as Tip already read, the very first verse we're just going to do, we're going to be in verse 1 for a long time. Just warning you, okay? (laughs) So page 222 in the Bible in front of you. In the days when the judges ruled. Okay, well, in the days when the judges ruled. Is is that a time period? It's a time period. It's telling you during this certain time period, this story happens in that time period, but it's so much more. It's, it's It's not just the chronological context, it's the moral context. If I said to you in the days when Putin ruled Russia, you have this wave of emotion and images and problems that come to your mind, and that's exactly what's going on here. As soon as the author says in the days when the judges ruled, their minds are swirling with all kinds of disobedience and international foreign nations coming in seven times. Remember the chart I had? You know, seven times these four nations would come in. God would use four nations to discipline Israel to get them to come back to the middle. And so in the days when the judges ruled is about time, but it's more so about the moral context. And so I just wanted to take um, a couple minutes to set the stage chronologically. We have just finished one of the prison epistles, um, Philippians, right? That's what we did, isn't it? And so um, that was the year about, you know, 60, 62. But now we're going back about 1,000 years to the time of Judges and Ruth, okay? That's just that. So we're going way back. So in your mind, Jesus has not died on the cross in the book of Ruth. Everything's pointing forward to Jesus dying on the cross. Now, this is part of the Old Testament. This is kind of a cool thing. So on the bookshelf, we've got, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of the law, and then the whole book of the history, and Ruth is right there. The neat, weird thing is, in your Bible, by the time you get to Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, right down here at the end, everything else in the Bible has already happened. Chronologically, Esther, Nehemiah, that's the end of the the road. So all the other... All the other books of poetry happen in here. All the books of the prophets happen in here, mostly in Kings and Chronicles. That's when the prophets are freaking out and saying, repent or perish. That's that's all they say. Anyway, 
So I just want you to know that uh, as we study the book of Ruth, we're right there in the history books, and, and, uh, and that's kind of where we're going, okay? So <clears throat> that's, that's good. But we got the moral climate going here, and before we get rolling, I just do have to tell you that this, you know, we studied the Gospel of Mark, and that's a certain type of literature, and then the epistle of the um, Philippians is a different kind of literature. So this is historical narrative. Now, historical narrative is... It's not just history. It, the Bible is not just a book of history. It doesn't tell us who invented the wheel, Sumerians. It doesn't tell us who invented pizza. I read once that China some, somehow, anyway. Or, or why do we have 60 minutes in, in an hour? Again, that's Sumeria. But anyway, it doesn't tell us those things because the Bible is all about redemption, right? It's a story of redemption. You get to, I guess you could say Genesis 1 and 2 are just history, like this is how anything got here. But then chapter 3, we have sin. And from that chapter, Genesis 3, every word, paragraph is devoted to a redemptive arc. Think about it this way. If there had not been the fall of, in, in sin, the Bible would have four chapters. You go Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and you zip back to the end of Revelation, and then you're done. There would be a lot less verses for the Iwana kids to memorize, right? Because you, it's just, you know, anyway. So, um, but we had the bulk of the Bible is all about fixing sin and getting that redemptive ark. And so the authors of any book in the Bible, they don't just, you know, they're, they're not up till midnight cramming this, you know, this paper. It's due in the morning. These things are masterful pieces of literature that they work hard at. And here's what I want you to hear. They include what they include on purpose, and they don't include what they don't include on purpose. So everything that's here is on purpose. Now, with historical narrative, it's very different from the epistles. Okay, the epistles, you know, you had um, Paul saying, have the mind of Christ, think this way, do this, don't do that. Okay, historical narrative is just more implicit, you have to hunt for this. You have, to, you have to dig into it, okay? I'll get into that in a bit later. But basically, so far, um, before Ruth, we have Genesis. Creation, fall into sin. Man is alienated from God. Man is alienated from each other. Husband and wife are alienated. And man is even alienated from the earth, okay? Then you have Exodus, where they come out of the bondage in Egypt. They go to the promised land. And then Leviticus, which we kind of mostly just blow over, uh, very significant with the book of Ruth because there's a couple passages in Leviticus 26 that frame what's going to happen in Ruth. Basically, it says, if you disobey, worship foreign gods, you will experience death, you will have no crops, no famine, and you will be destitute. Remember that, all right? The important thing is for the Jews, when they experienced famine, to them, it was always theological. You and I don't think that way, right? Super Doppler Channel 7 or whatever it is. They, they never talk about Yahweh's anger, right? And we're, we're, we're glad for that. But, that's, but in this culture, because of God's word, that's how it was. Leviticus 26 uh, says, if you continue to disobey me, I will discipline, discipline you sevenfold. Remember? Judges, the author of Judges, why does he have seven stories of nations coming in and disciplining? Probably to throw their minds back to the sevenfold in, Levi in Leviticus 26, okay? Anyway, um, I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Now, those are not precious metals. It, heavens like iron means it's not going to rain. 
and the earth with no rain is hard as rock, like bronze, okay? You got no crops, okay? That's what he's saying, all right? So famine is theological. And you go on through the book of Numbers. They're wandering around, and they, they stumble into Moab. And Balak, the king of Moab, hires Balaam, the prophet, if you can't remember that. K for Balak. K is the king. And L, Balaam, is the loser prophet. Just helping out. It, you'll appreciate that on the test on Friday. Anyway, so, um, so Balak tries to curse Israel. But wait a minute. I thought back in Genesis that God said something about he was going to bless Israel, bless those who bless you. And now you've got some from Moab who's trying to curse Israel. So Moab has this sort of cloud of like, um, it's just a bad idea. Moab is just a bad idea, okay? And then you get to Deuteronomy, and you have... Um, the same law repeated, and so you have, you have some, um, some things repeated in Deuteronomy 28. Uh, the heavens over your head shall be bronze, the earth under you shall be iron, the Lord will make the rain of your land powder. You get in a water, you get dust. From heaven, dust shall come down until you are destroyed. And so again, disobedience results in famine. Remember that when we start to read the book of Ruth. Okay? And so... Um, Another verse here in Deuteronomy, this is interesting, just say no to Moabites. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. A couple comments, you know, the assembly of the Lord, that just means public worship. And for an Israelite, everything's about public worship. That's how their whole country runs. And so if you're prohibited from public worship, you're like, what are you doing? You're not part of the nation. And then when it says to the 10th generation, no one's counting. It means forever, okay? Just like Jesus, 70 times 7, you know, he doesn't really mean 490. Anyway, so that's what's going on there. And so uh, the point here, if you are from Moab, you got no future in Israel. There's nothing for you there, okay? Remember that when we get to verse 1, all right? And so... Um, so Joshua goes on there, story of victory, victory through obedience, judges <clears throat> defeat through compromise and sin and the seven nations that come in. And so judges, in the days of judges, this is the context. This is where this story happens. And judges, is just, it's just a nightmare. It, it, everything's going wrong, okay? And so the book of Ruth comes into the middle of this, and it asks, asks a question, where can you find rest? Where are you, are you going to find rest in Moab? Here's a, another verse in Deuteronomy 28. It says, um, if you disobey, the Lord will scatter you among the nations. Among these nations, you will find no resting place for the sole of your foot. Interesting. There's no rest in other nations. Remember that when we get to verse 1. Okay? And so here's, here's where I, <clears throat> I'm going to geek out with you, a little academic, a geek out here. I, I, can't, I can't resist. We've talked about chaotic structures in the past, and, and this is just a tool that these Hebrew people use because they memorize large quantities of material. And if you have a tool, a trick that helps you memorize it, it's easier to memorize. And so the idea is that if you remember A and B, um, B prime and A prime, they're, they're, sim they're not the same, but they're similar enough that you you already are halfway down the road. So here we go. This is the whole book of Ruth. And typically in these chiastic structures, the center of it is what the author is shouting. Remember that. Like Genesis 6, 7, 8, three chapters, a gigantic chiastic structure, the flood narrative. In the middle of that, you know what the middle of the flood is? God remembered Noah. And then it backs up, 
Okay? Anyway, so sometimes you might be reading in Ephesians or wherever, and, and you, you read some words, and you're like, you keep, and I thought I just saw that word. Get out some scratch paper and start mapping out because you might stumble across these. Okay? Anyway, so Naomi is too old to conceive, but at the end of the book, she receives a son. The possible redeemer is introduced. A redeemer is not denied. So see, there's similar things. Ruth and Naomi's plan begins, and the plan ends. Ruth is in Boaz's field, Ruth and a field, a common field. Boaz comes from Bethlehem, and then Boaz goes to Bethlehem. Boaz asks, who is that young woman? And then um, Naomi asks the question, how did it go? Now, Boaz provides food for Ruth and brings one ephah of barley to Naomi, but down here it's six measures of barley to Naomi. Naomi blesses Boaz, Boaz blesses Ruth. Boaz is the one in position to redeem. Ruth asks Boaz to act as a redeemer. Um, Ruth joins Boaz's workers. Ruth requests Boaz protection. And in the middle, it's the plan of rest. They have a plan to rest. Rest comes from God's loving kindness. It comes from returning to the house of bread. It comes from following God in faithfulness. And so they experience a man of character in a period of anarchy named Boaz who is acting out God's loving kindness, and they experience that. So anyway, I'll, I'll probably come back to just this concept of rest quite a bit as we go through the whole book. So rest, where are you going to get it? Um, let's go to verse 1 here again. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons, all right? So, again, um, Moab is a bad idea. Back in Judges, the people of Israel, again, it was evil on the side of the Lord. They served the Baals, Ashroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, and the gods of Moab. And so the Lord's anger was kindled, kindled against them. So Moab is generally a bad idea. And so um, in Judges, the, a lot of the Judges are what we would call canonized. There's so much like the enemy, they're, 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 they're confused. You know what I mean? They're not really Jephthah that kills his daughter and like thinking that's going to be working out. And um, in Ruth, we see godly characters. Boaz and Ruth are godly characters. And not so much Elimelech. And um, I'll unpack that in a second here. All right? So the ending of the book. Um, have you ever seen a good movie, right? Sometimes the movies, they start with this, this scene from the end. And then you get back to the movie, and the whole movie goes and explains how you got to that ending. On Easter, we looked at the movie Risen. It's like from 2016, um, like super old, right? But anyway, it was really good. I'd never seen it before, but the very beginning, no spoiler alerts, the, very, the opening scene is the end, and then you get the whole movie showing how this Roman centurion who's serving Pontius Pilate, how he got to that point, and that's the story in the middle, and it's pretty good. Anyway, so here's the ending of Ruth. Now, these are the generations. You bored yet? These are the generations of Perez. Perez, father of Hezron. Hezron, father of Ram. Ram, fathered Aminadab. Aminadab, fathered Nashon. Nashon, fathered Salmon. Salmon, fathered Boaz. Boaz, fathered Obed. Obed, fathered Jesse. Jesse, fathered David. Why would you end a book with this? I mean, really? This is the best you can do? Okay, maybe it was due in five minutes. You just had to wrap it up, hit submit. Or, or is it on purpose? Is this at all helpful? How does the beginning of the book with, with death in Moab 
and a famine connect to offspring and life and a future and hope. It's almost that like the middle of the story provides something of value that gets us from death and emptiness to life and fullness. That's the story of Ruth, okay? It's a love story. It's not just a love story between Ruth and Boaz. It's a love story between God and his people and the loving kindness of God. That's, that's what we're doing. That's where we're going, okay? But this is interesting, too. Um, Perez. Perez is the guy that, that the whole, he was born through Tamar's prostitute trick with Judah. That's all I'll say there. But it's just, it's, there's a cloud. It's like, I, Really? I mean, couldn't you, why not Abraham or why not somebody else? But, but there's this history of picking sketchy women in the line of, of Jesus, and that's very much on purpose. That Matthew 1 picks that up, all right? So um, the point there is, is um, the line, the genealogy is very, very important. So you, you have to have a genealogy going forward if you're going to f- solve sin. Genesis 3. The reason we're here is to solve Genesis 3. And if you got no genealogy, then you got problems. And if you have no genealogy, I have, an, I have, a, I have instant ancestors for you. <laughs> With 25 cents, you can get some. It's great, okay? Anyway, so um, I was in Texas and saw that. I thought that's hilarious. So again, the, the beginning, it starts with everyone's dying. Not everyone, just the men. That's on purpose. Think about that. Why are just the men dying? And at the end, you have life and offspring and genealogy. So we have this, this, this barren emptiness that the story moves to future life and fullness. Um, again, through the character of Boaz who lives out the loving kindness of God. But that's, um, that's not all. Here we have in Matthew 1 the, the genealogy. He picks up on this. Matthew has read the book of Ruth probably more than once. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, let that sink in. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. Look at this, and, and I've, I'm probably going to preach on this again, because I just, I just can't get enough of this guy named Salmon, who marries Rahab the prostitute during the days of Judges, when anarchy is the norm, and somehow produces a godly man like Boaz, who's marching to the beat of a different drum than the culture, who stands up as a man of character and righteousness and sacrifice. And and that gives us hope as parents. No matter what the culture does, we can be the ones as parents that that train our kids to to walk with God, right? Anyway, so I I find that to be tremendously um, empowering. Also, think about this. Little Boaz at the kitchen table hears stories about mom and dad and how that whole thing worked out. Well, what did grandma say when you brought the prostitute home and said, this is, I'm dating this girl. How did that go? And I remember, I used to, I used to think about that, like, oh, honey, what are you doing? And then I really got into the story, and I, I kind of changed that. Because this family is a family of strong men that understand the grace of God and the transforming power of God. And now I'm convinced when, when, um, When, when, they, when Boaz, let me get it straight now, Salmon married Rahab. So when Salmon brings Rahab home to his parents, his parents probably didn't freak out. They probably said, oh, honey, welcome to the God of Israel. You will find rest and forgiveness, and, and, and you will flourish here 
because God is, he champions the outsiders. That seems to be the fabric of their family culture. Is that the fabric that you want in your family culture? Yeah, it's, it's something that we don't get to that accidentally, but I think that's where, that's where they were going. But there's a problem here. Do you see the problem? Ruth is in that verse. Ruth is from Moab. Moab is one of those godless nations that if you go there and worship their gods, you die. Your crops don't grow. Ruth, Obed, Jesse, David. That means King David had Moabite blood in his veins. Jews are going to be nervous about foreign nations to begin with because the whole period of Judges, foreign nation, foreign nation, foreign nation. And now if you have a king with foreign blood in his veins, you're like, yeah, I don't think I can vote for him. It's awkward. Is, is, here's the question. Is that a deal breaker? If it is a deal breaker, what does that mean about salvation? Who is it for? Who is it not for? This is huge. This is huge, right? So, does that disqualify David from being king? I think one of the purposes that this book ends with the genealogy of David is, in fact, to say, no, that does not disqualify him to be king of Israel. In fact, this is very much on purpose. It shows God's heart for the outsider. So Jews, figure that out. Don't just lock the gates and keep the foreigner out. You've got to open up and let him in. And that's obviously hard, all right? So this, this is interesting. Um, I've showed this before. We went through the book of Judges, like, I don't know, a year ago or whatever. So you've got Moses, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, kind of the flow that Ruth happens right here in the middle of Judges in the days when Judges ruled. And remember, we took a look at the cycles there in Judges, and we observed that the book of Judges begins, Judah shall go up first, and the book of Judges ends saying Judah shall go up first. So Judah is, um, the king was supposed to be from Judah in Israel. Okay, God chose the kings to come from Judah, except their first king is Saul from Benjamin, and that was never supposed to happen. How long was Saul king? Forty years, okay? Check this out. Um, Israel rejects God's choice of a Judean king and of David's line. They reject it for 390 years, Okay. Um, they said, we have no portion of David, we have no inheritance, everyone go do what you want, go home. They rejected that. that these words are spoken in about 983 B.C. And then Ezekiel chapter 4 picks up this random weird imagery that you may have heard about, you may have not, but this is the answer to that. In Ezekiel 4, God tells Ezekiel, lie on your left side for the punishment of Israel. For the number of days you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I sign you a number of days 390 days equal to the number of years of their punishment. So God wanted the king to come from Judah. They rejected David's line, the Judean king, for 390 years. And so God is telling Ezekiel, lay on your left side for 390 days. And here's the thing. The people in that culture would get it. It's not obscure to them. They'd be like, oh, yeah, Ezekiel, weirdo. You know, they're, they're mocking him. Oh, big deal, because we rejected David. Like, whatever. They're just mocking him, but that's what's going on. Now, remember Saul? How long was Saul king? He was, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, not supposed to be king. He, he was there 40 years. And in Hosea, God says, in my anger, I gave you a king. In my wrath, I took him away. And, and Ezekiel says, when you've completed these days of Israel, you shall lie down a second time on your right side the punishment of the house of Judah, 40 days a day for each year because Saul was king for 40 
years, and he was not supposed to be king for one day, okay? Anyway, so this is, this is the, the, the problem here is that David has foreign blood in his veins. Is that a deal breaker? Uh, apparently it was for some people. There were other political issues there. It wasn't just his, his Moabite blood in his veins. It was the political tension. But anyway, I just want you to, to see that David as king would be problematic on a lot of fronts, and it was not a smooth campaign that he had to, to wage, okay? Anyway, so um, without the book of Ruth, we would be confused about the genealogy in Matthew 1. We wouldn't appreciate the, the role that Ruth and Rahab play in the line of Christ. We certainly wouldn't understand how God is opening the doors for the outsider, right? If you're familiar with the book of Acts, Acts 15 is a big, it's a big deal meeting. They, they, they meet about what do we do with a Gentile believers? Do they, do they come into the faith? Can they have a place at the table equal to us? Do they have to do the law? What, what do we do with them? And without the book of Ruth, I'm wondering if Acts 15 would end entirely differently, like salvation is not for the Gentiles. They, they can't come in, but you have the book of Ruth that just blows that door wide open, okay? So the book of Ruth is huge and very important about uh, salvation for Gentiles. So back to verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. And so, um, just finally, a couple more comments about how, how this book was written, historical narrative, it's written to Jews who have a completely different way of thinking than we do. And you have to honor their culture, you have to honor the way they wrote. So here's just a couple things about how we think. It's not how they think. We are Western. We, we like truth. We like definitions. We like outlines, bullet points. I love bullet points. Sometimes I read a book, and I'm like, what are you trying to say? Anyway, just give me the bullet points. I, I'm a product of my culture, short attention span. I, I apologize. But anyway, and, and we ask, well, what is God like? And we define. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent, okay? That is not how people who... who the culture of the text, that's not how they think. They think, in, in, they think in terms of pictures and stories and symbols and imagery and, and dialogue. Yeah, it's vague. And it drives us crazy. What are you trying to say? See, here's the thing. Um, when they ask, what is God like, they, they don't define him. They'll say, oh, he's like a fortress. Well, well, what do you mean? Yeah, he protects us like a fortress. He's like the sun. And we're like, I, I got nothing. What, what are you trying to say? Okay, so there's this vast difference between them and us. Now, the other thing to remember is that the Jews, that they, they do not enjoy, appreciate, straight up, do this, don't do that. Unless the Lord says, do this, don't do that. You know, don't worship Molech. Okay, that's good. But they love, they love stories where they have to discover and be a detective and, and link and look for themes. They love that. That is how they think. And sometimes that's not how we think, okay? And so just a heads up on that. That's kind of where they're going. Uh, this is how they view God. We, or we've, we think that we have to prove God's existence. Have you ever just stepped back and smiled at that? <laughs> anyway, like it's up to us. Anyway, um, we think to, to know and to prove scientifically, right? We focus on the nature of God. Um, what is God? Who is he like? And that the Eastern people, the, the people of the text, they just assume God's existence. They want to know and relate to the God. They, they, don't, they don't have to prove he exists. 
They focus on the nature of the relationship, okay, and they seek to relate to God. So vastly, vastly different. I've heard somebody say that, that if you give a Western person a frog, and, um, you know, they'll, they'll dissect it, and oh, here's the tendons, and here's the heart, and here's this. You give an Eastern person a, a frog, and they'll be like, does it have a name? Does it have brothers? It's a completely different way of thinking, okay? And so we have to approach the text, kind of be aware of our own lens and, and be aware to back up and go, okay, just because things aren't straight up said super clearly doesn't mean we're not supposed to see them, all right? And I'll, I'll get to that. All right. So um, when we go to verse 1, we've read it several times now. So when there's a famine in the land, my first thought is theological disobedience. That's what they would think. I think the author is starting off, there's a famine. We're like, whoa, a famine? Well, that means something. That is not just random accident, especially when, the, when, the, when it's, they live in Bethlehem. Do you know what Bethlehem means? Beit Lahem, house of bread. There's a famine in the house of bread in the land of God. Well, that's not an accident, right? So, that's on purpose. And then when they go to a foreign land and there's death, 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 that's not just random. That's very much on purpose. So the very first verse is so packed with cultural and textual links. You really got to understand that. You see what I'm saying? Okay. So these are not just random things that are reported. They're connecting the dots. The last stop before we get to verse 2. <laughs> um, let's connect the dots with the significance of going to Moab. I think I've told you in the past that, that the basic way people thought in the ancient Near East where they thought their gods were kind of bound to certain geographic areas. When you left one geographic area, you left the realm of that god, and you entered the realm of another god. You're in Egypt, and you've got these gods there. You leave Egypt. Well, now they had their god in the wilderness. They called, they called Yahweh god of the desert. But when they crossed the Jordan River... They assumed that they're now in the realm of the God, whoever is in charge there, who happened to be Baal. So here's just a verse that gives you a little picture into that, that, that thinking. A man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, um, Thus says the Lord, because the Arameans have said the God is a God of the mountains, but he's not a God of the valleys, therefore I will give all this multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord of the valleys, the sea, have everything. Okay, but, but their, their basic assumption was that he's limited, he's only, he's only here. Here's another one. It was reported to the king of Assyria, the foreign people you deported and resettled in the towns of Samaria, they don't know what the God of that country, Yahweh, requires. And so he has sent lions among them, which are killing them off because the people don't know what he requires. Now, whether or not God did that or not, that was his explanation. And, he's, and look at this, verse 27. The king of Assyria gave this order. Have one of the priests you took captive from Samaria go back and live there and teach the people what the God of that land requires. This is the first state-sponsored mission activity, right? Assyria. He's like, hey, you got to go back there because... Anyway, but the, the assumption is that there's a God here and there's a God there and there's no God that's God over everywhere. That's just how the culture worked, okay? Anyway, so now we go to verse 1 and we see that there's a famine. So again, famine, it's theological, right? It's very much theological. Um, and Bethlehem, house of bread. There's no bread in the house of bread. So this guy is going to go look for bread, life, sustenance, in the foreign land of Moab. How is that going to work out exactly, right? 
And if you read verse 1 carefully, it says, there's famine in the land, and a man, not a family, a man of Bethlehem went to Moab. He, he and his family. So I think this decision is on Elimelech. He's the one that made the bad decision, takes his family, and he goes there, all right? Is this a vacation? No. He is abandoning the way of the Lord. God has disappointed him. There's no food. He's disappointed. We're running away. This doesn't work. This whole Yahweh, Israel thing, forget it. I'm leaving. I'm going away. And it even says he remained there, okay? He stayed there quite a while, actually 10 years. And so um, it's faithless wandering, um, looking for life in all the wrong places. I think there's a song. Anyway, just came to my head. Sorry about that. But anyway, um, now Ruth, Ruth is, is the, the irony here because you've got people who are Jews who are from Bethlehem. And if you're from Bethlehem, this is a great city of messianic promise, right? And you should know better. I remember when my son Micah was like super little, I don't know, kindergarten or whatever, there was another kid in the class named Noah. And one day Noah got in trouble. And Micah came home and said, today Noah got in trouble. With a name like that, he should know better. <laughs> and so I, I think of this. I mean, like, dude, if you're from Bethlehem, you should know better. You should have some kind of a theistic perspective on what's going on. But no, well, there's no bread, so we're out of here. God has disappointed me. I'm going to go look for life in Moab. And when you look for life in Moab, just the way this culture works, you, you're now in the realm of another god. You're, you're probably worshiping the other god. That's just... That's a, that's a legit assumption in how people of this culture worked. Okay, so a foreign nation, Moab. Let's see, I think I got a picture of Moab here. Oh, nope, that's not, not this Moab. No, that's not Moab either. No, that, that's Utah, but not the Moab we're talking about. And so anyway, these are all pictures of Moab, Utah. Just fun, fun place. Love it. But we're talking about this Moab, right? Right over here. Okay, and so that's about 30 miles in. Check this out. If there's a famine in Moab, there's a famine in Israel. It's like West Omaha to Council Bluffs. I mean, maybe it rains in Council Bluffs, but it doesn't rain in West Omaha, but not for three years creating a famine. You see what I'm saying? And so it's just odd that you would go there to get bread because it's not going to help the famine. So I think there's a deeper dissatisfaction with Yahweh, all right? So, theological reasons. Uh, so, Moab is, is, is a bad idea. The name of the man was Elimelech, verse 2. The name of his wife, Naomi. The two sons were Malon, Kilion. Um, they were from Bethlehem. They went to Moab. And the last three words, and remained there. These names are interesting, right? You have Elimelech. It means God is my king. I'm like, really? Is that why you just left? Naomi means pleasant. Well, then why do you want to be called bitter in chapter 2? Anyway, let's go on to verse 3. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She's left with no sons. Again, you worship another god in a foreign land, you're going to experience death. And then they take Moabite wives in verse 4. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. I know your husband's dead, but still, you're not following Yahweh's ways. You're just letting him marry these Moabite women. I've got a verse. Bad idea. 
Anyway, so I think Elimelech and Naomi have this message. Yahweh's disappointed us. He can't provide bread. Don't bother serving him. Don't bother following his ways. Just marry whoever you want. It doesn't matter. And, um, and that's what's going on there. Here's just a quick verse. You know, back in, in Numbers 25, just say no to Moabite girls. They're getting mixed up with the daughters of Moab, and the anger of the Lord is kindled against Israel. So anyway, I'll move past that in a hurry. But, but they, there's death here again, right? So death. Death, death, what does that mean? Isn't it interesting that the death hits just the men? So this is not starvation. Starvation isn't gender specific. I think it rests on the responsibility of men to lead the family. They blew it, and God's like, next? You know what I mean? Anyway, so Ruth, the book of Ruth, is showing this movement from death to life leaning and discovering the loving kindness of God in Israel, in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and everything, everything gets better when they come back to Bethlehem. The book starts with famine, with no food, no home, and no male support, and it ends with food where? In Bethlehem, a home in Bethlehem, a righteous husband and offspring in Bethlehem. So everything about this is return to God, return to worshiping him, return to serving him, and the story in between is everything that's exciting and, and fun to talk about. But this sets the stage for where we're going, okay? Sets the stage. Um, I think the message of Ruth is as long as someone can discover the loving kindness of God, there's hope. No matter how your story started or where your story is right now, there's hope. The loving kindness of God gives us hope, right? And rest is not found in Moab. The only thing in Moab is death. Now, now, what is Moab to you and me? It can be wherever we run to for life and significance. It can be Moab, recreation. I, I, my heart's wired for adventure, and, and that can become a thing. Maybe it's recognition or money or power or who knows what it is. There's a whole bunch of things that we can run. We can say, God disappointed me. I'm leaving him and I'm going here and I'm going to find life there. And you can spend your entire life. They spent 10 years spinning their wheels. So if you ever think God has failed you, you feel like quitting, you're wondering where to find rest, I can tell you, you can run around in circles looking for it, but you're only going to find rest when you return to God, worship him for who he is, recognizing and embracing his loving kindness, all right? So here's our closing questions. We always like to close, close with a couple questions. Uh, are you leaving the God of life in search of life in foreign lands? Where are you going to find rest? And are you accepting those in your family or sphere of influence that have spotted past um, Ruth? by all accounts, doesn't belong, but the grace of God and her character. She finds a place, not only a place in Israel, but she finds a place in the Messiah's line. So there's hope in the loving kindness of God. And so um, I'll just pray here a little bit, have a little bit of closing music and uh, just a couple minutes to think about that and let us, um, let us think about what God would have, have us think. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faithfulness of Boaz. And, and his dad and, and mom, Salomon and Rahab, what a great couple to, to figure out how to walk with you in godliness and, and hand that baton of their faith during a period of anarchy to their son, Boaz, who in turn shows 
Ruth, loving kindness, just a great story of redemption. It gives us hope that in our culture that's uh, disintegrating, we have hope in your loving kindness, and may we extend that to others as we receive it. Amen.